the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The word of the Lord. Amen. Father, in these moments we ask that you would speak. Would you give us clarity to understand yeah, just the whole truth of Passover. The beautiful reality of what's happening in this passage. Would you, by your spirit, grant us clarity to hear your voice, to know what it is you're calling us to. We invite you to convict and to comfort. Yeah, confront us and show us your compassion all at the same time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to Fourth of July at Mosaic. Lots of people on the road, a few folks sick as well, but it's cool to see Lucas in the house. Little baby Lucas is in the house. I think this is probably his first time around, maybe, um, and that's real exciting because little Lucas was born at, was it 27 weeks? What a gift, man. How incredible. God has been so gracious. So it's cool to see that, but it's, it's 4th of July, and we don't have any big to-do or anything, uh, but I do think it's, it, it's fitting that we find ourselves in Passover on the 4th of July, that, that might not seem like an immediate connection, uh, but on the eve of July 4th, here we are, right? We, we think of the 4th of July as kind of the beginning of our nation as we know it, right? It's the genesis of this whole new kind of nation, really, in the world at the time. A nation conceived in liberty, Lincoln says, right? Something incredible, the start of something new. And in Exodus, what we're seeing with Passover, God says to Moses and Aaron, this month is to be the first month of your year. Passover is to mark the beginning of your whole year. 
This is where it all starts. The Passover became a way of, of marking time in Jewish culture, a way of understanding things. It forever reminded them of the day that they were no longer slaves, but they became free. They came back to it over and over again. It, it was the beginning of their salvation. Passover was this beautiful reminder of God's redemption. He had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. But it all came at a horrific cost. It's a, a painful story in some sense. I think if, if we're being honest as we read it, it's hard to feel proud. It's hard to celebrate something like the death of, of innocent Egyptian children. That's one of these aspects of the story that it's kind of hard to swallow. That number of, of dead children. And even adults, if you think about it, right? Because it's the firstborn of Egypt. There's this sense that this is a really painful thing, and sometimes we can kind of brush over that. I think about John Steinbeck in, uh, in East of Eden, if you've ever read it. He has this phrase that's always stuck with me. In one particular story, a man uses this phrase, a dreadful kind of beauty. There is a, a, a dreadful kind of beauty to Passover, See, it's, it's beautiful in the sense that this long-oppressed people, these people who had suffered so much, they've now finally been freed, right? But it is dreadful in the sense that it comes at the cost of the life of so many innocents, right? And I, I think the truth is we, we ought to mourn what we see happening in Egypt, the cost of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. That we ought to mourn those things. But I think we have to mourn it for the right reasons. We have to mourn all of this, not because we're seeing in this story a, a God who has forsaken who we thought he was. A God who is much more cruel than we ever realized. A, a once patient, loving, merciful God who has now forgotten his own character. Betrayed his own character in a moment of wrath and anger. He's taken it too far this time. No. This is the God you thought he was. This is a God who, who refuses to allow Pharaoh all of this injustice. He refuses to ignore injustice that his own innocent people have been suffering for so long. He's a God who refuses to allow a king to stay in power who's guilty of such atrocities and policies as the murder of every Israelite baby boy. He refuses to allow an empire like that to endure. He is who you thought he was. Pharaoh had been demanding the life of every Israelite son. He had called open season, effectively, on innocent infants. It's horrifying. And also that he could maintain his grip on power. For nothing more than his kingdom, he was willing to do this kind of thing. And the Passover represents that moment when God says, very literally in Exodus 4, he sends Moses to say to Pharaoh, if you mess with my firstborn, if you mess with my family, I will mess with yours. Like if you, if you threaten my firstborn, I have to come for yours. It's this really painful moment, right? And that kind of sounds a little bit better to us, right? That, that sounds, you know like just retribution. It sounds like vengeance, right? It, it sounds like vigilante justice. It sounds like Hollywood is the truth of it, right? That's the kind of stuff we, we're, we're, we're on board with, like redemptive violence, like, like we're, we're 
on board with all of that. It sounds like it's going to be served up like Stallone, Statham style, like Liam Neeson style. Did you guys re realize at some point in the late 2000s, Liam Neeson somehow became an action star? Uh, like he became like the new guy. Like he, he was the guy who was going to, to get vengeance. Because like there was a time when he was like, he was in Schindler's List. I thought about this week. Schindler's List, he was in... Uh, Rob, Rob, he was in Les Miserables. He was in, um, even his comic book movies were serious. Batman Begins, right? Ra's al Ghul, are you, I mean, this guy's serious and, and dark and brooding. I mean, that makes sense, but then suddenly it shifts. Taken, Taken 2, Taken 3, right? And then a whole lot of other ones that are just like it, right? Somehow he became that guy, right? And it's like in this moment, we see for a second, maybe God has put on his best Liam Neeson impression, and he's like, now you're going to let my people go. And that feels kind of good. And if Michael Bay was making a movie, a blockbuster about the Passover, that's what it would be like. And he'd make millions of dollars on it, I'm sure, somehow. People would still go see it. But that's not what Exodus is doing. This is not that kind of vengeance. This is not that kind of justice. This justice looks different. God isn't just exacting a price from Pharaoh. God isn't just demanding something of Pharaoh for what he's done. This is not just vengeance as we normally think of it. He's not just punishing an injustice. He's redeeming a people. He's not just making sure Pharaoh knows he's in power. I'm the one who's really in power. I'm God and not you. It's not just that. These are my people, and I am their God. And he's making this clear. He's redeeming them and not just getting vengeance. But all of that comes at an awful cost. What's so good about Exodus 12 is there's this reminder. We're seeing kind of the, the earliest moments of it. In Exodus 12, you begin to see that that awful cost, God is going to steadily shift onto himself. God is beginning to bring that cost completely on himself, solely on himself. God allows in this story the blood of another, of a lamb, as a substitute for his own people. The blood of a lamb marks them as his people. In the midst of, of Egypt, they are marked in this way, as unique as his. This blood protects them from the terrible thing that is about to come. But as we kind of press further into Exodus, we're in our fourth week in this series in the summer. As we press further into Exodus, what we're going to see is that not just Egypt is capable of injustice and idolatry, of evil, of sin. Israel is. Israel, you will see, as you, you press further into Exodus, they're capable of, of, of all kinds of things, too. You go deeper into the Old Testament, especially into Numbers, and you see that they're capable of, of terrible things. You go deeper, and you'll see it more and more. The prophets are pointing it out, how they're guilty of the same kinds of things. You'll begin to see that the, the whole of humanity is, is guilty in this way that Egypt is in the story. What's well, so amazing about Exodus is that we begin to see that all along from the beginning of time, from the dawn of creation, God has been preparing a lamb. God has always been preparing a lamb. There has always been this lamb in the background. God has always been shifting our eyes toward him. This is the reality of Passover. We're beginning to see the beginning of all of that, the start of all of that. Now, here's the thing you need to know. From the start of, of our study of Scripture, beginning in Genesis, from the beginning, there is this concept baked into the Scriptures of Israel 
the value of a firstborn son. It doesn't mean daughters have no value. You know this about the ancient world. Sons are the ones who are able to work. Women are not allowed that in the same kind of way. Sons are the ones who are asked to protect and to sustain a family. This is the way it works. And in particular, the firstborn son you have is, is precious, special in a different kind of way. It was the, the ancient family's ancient family, excuse me, greatest history, greatest sense of, excuse me, uh, of permanence, of meaning. How can my family endure? How can my family last? We don't think in those terms any longer, but permanence was valuable to them because life didn't last very long for them. And so the firstborn had all of these expectations all these dreams and hopes tied to him, right? They were the ones who would sustain the family. That's why they were given the largest portion of an inheritance. So think about it. When we look back at like Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, I need you to give me your firstborn son. Like it sounds like a horrible thing that God is asking of him. Give to me the one I promised to you. Give to me the one you've been waiting for. Give to me the one you've longed for your entire life, the one you've placed all your dreams and your hopes and your expectations on. Give that to me and instead place your hopes and your expectations and your dreams in me. This is what God is asking. Isaac was always mine. He was always my gift to you. Don't ever forget that. He's precious to me in the same way he is to you. He belongs to me. And Abraham understood that. The ancients, they understood this. It all made sense to them. But for Abraham to do this was to give up his family's last great hope. He had to trust that God was really his hope. There's this thing we all do where our hopes, our focus shifts almost solely to the things we're given rather than to the one who's actually given them to us, right? To the gift rather than the giver, right? Like we lose sight of these things. And Abraham in that moment is making clear that he trusts God. And the way the story plays out, Abraham actually does it. Abraham takes Isaac up this mountain and is ready to, to sacrifice his own son when God interrupts. God says, stop, don't do it. It's this amazing moment. God provides a substitute, if you remember. There's a ram trapped in these, these bushes off to the side. God provides in this incredible way. But Abraham knew none of that when he decided to carry Isaac up the mountain. He does that because he knows a firstborn belongs to God. And no matter how painful it is, the firstborn belongs to God. It was this established concept in the ancient world, right? This was no surprise to Abraham. It was painful, but not surprising. So think about this. In Exodus 4, here again, what Moses says to Pharaoh, Israel is the firstborn son of Yahweh. When you hear Moses say that to Pharaoh, you know things just got real. Things just got really intense in that moment when he says, Israel is my firstborn. These Hebrew slaves, they're my firstborn. Born, God is saying. Not in just some metaphorical sense. Obviously, they are his children in some metaphorical sense, but in a very literal way, how many firstborn Israelite sons have been thrown into the Nile because of the policies of Pharaoh? How many baby boys have been drowned? And every one of them was precious in his eyes. 
precious to him. They all mattered to him. It's unique what's happening here. God is is saying something powerful, something astounding. And it doesn't sound so strange as we look at it from this angle, what God is asking of Egypt. When God demands the firstborn of Egypt, it starts to make more sense when we see it this way. It was well established in the ancient mind. They knew it. Even Egypt understood this concept. But here's what makes this different. God, just like in Genesis 22, provides a substitute for Abraham. He's providing a substitute for his people, a lamb. And he tells them to kill this lamb, to roast it, and to to eat it together as a family. And then to take some of the blood, to rub it on the doorposts, the doorframe of their homes. Again, sounds gruesome to us, to them it's completely familiar. And they do all of this because, he says, the destroyer is coming. We don't know who that is, by the way. We don't know exactly what that means. You don't see that uh, in the Old Testament. The destroyer doesn't appear very often. Um, an angel of death, some people have said, is it God himself? Uh, we, we, we don't know. We just know the destroyer represents the embodiment of God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness. And the thing about it is, is when the destroyer comes to Egypt, God is making clear, even Israel can't stand in his presence Even they are not just or holy or righteous enough to stand in his presence. They need this this covering, right? Again, the ancients understand all of this. It's foreign to us. It's familiar to them. No one is safe to stand before the destroyer, even Israel, unless they are marked by the blood of a lamb. I think we all understand the concept of sacrifice. When I say sacrifice, you guys know where that comes from. Though we don't practice this in our culture any longer, we would think it was strange if our neighbor killed one of their, you know, their livestock, a goat next door. Katie's got a pig living next door right now. If they slaughtered him tomorrow on the 4th of July, she would be bothered by that. She wouldn't know what's happening, especially if it was a ritual sacrifice. That's unfamiliar to us, and yet we completely understand it at some level, right? Our culture is different from theirs, but we know what it means. We know how it works. The death of an animal in the place of of my life, right? Their life instead of my life. Their blood instead of my blood is being spilled for whatever it is I might have done. That makes sense, but I'm not sure we understand the why. Why does it actually work in God's eyes? Why does the blood of this innocent creature somehow justify me or make me righteous? How does it remove my sin? Because practically, this animal cannot make right whatever I have done wrong. The wrong I have committed, it will continue to reverberate throughout creation, right? Among those I know and love. It will continue to have effects and consequences beyond me, right? It can't heal whoever I have hurt the blood of this creature. So how does all of this actually work? How does blood from another animal and not my own, make this right. But it's actually something you kind of see from the earliest parts of Genesis. Think about it. Uh, Genesis 3, there's this moment. Adam and Eve choose to eat of the fruit of the tree that God tells them not to, right? From that moment, humanity departs. They leave from the path that God has in mind for creation, for his people. And in doing so, something is lost, right? Somehow, none of us is excluded from that. 
We know this from the story of Genesis. It seems to move outward. Adam and Eve fail, and yet all of humanity, we see, is suffering from it. That brokenness, that woundedness, that sinfulness, that propensity for idolatry and injustice, oppression and hate and violence and all of these things, it somehow touches everyone and everything, right? There's this movement outward. It spills out into all of creation. This is how the Jewish people saw the world. They recognized everything had been touched by it. Even though they weren't necessarily responsible for any of these things that had happened, they recognized somehow they bore a kind of guilt, a complicity in it. They were complicit in the way the world was. They were culpable somehow for the way the world ended up as it is. What's wrong with the world, they recognized, was connected to them. Somehow they were culpable, they were complicit. That's the way they saw the world. Somehow it had been tainted by this thing that happened. Humanity had failed from the beginning, and all of us are feeling the results of it. We know this, even in our modern culture, even with our, our modern minds. We see the world completely different. We think about guilt and shame very differently, and yet we still feel it. Like thinking, I've never enslaved anyone. I never owned a slave. I've never lit a cross on fire in someone's front yard. I've never bombed an abortion clinic. And yet, all those things happened here. All those things happened in our city. And we all feel a level of shame about all of those things. Why? Because American Christians perpetrated them. We think to ourselves, there is a level of shame, I feel, to know that somebody like me did that. We feel a level of shame, a level of guilt. Something bothers us. Part of the reason we don't want to talk about it a lot. We're bothered by these things. They affect us. This is what shame does. Sin has a way of creating this shame, right? And it affects others beyond just us. Whatever it is I might have done, somehow it has effects and consequences. It reverberates. And Paul understood all of this. Paul knew it. He was very familiar with it. And when he was explaining the gospel of Jesus, it's in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says this. He says, just as in Adam, all have died. Right? He's pointing out the way that we all share this guilt. We don't necessarily understand why. It's a thing we feel inherently, right? But he goes on, just as in Adam, all die, in Christ, all live. Catch that. Then he does it similarly in Romans 5. If the many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You catch this. Just as in, in Genesis, in the beginning, somehow sin spilled out, overflowed into the world. He's saying in Jesus in the same way, grace and life overflowed into the world and it is spreading. It's infectious. It's having effects and consequences and repercussions. Jesus shakes the core of creation when he does this. Just as in Adam, we all suffered something that we didn't necessarily feel connected to. We're feeling the effects of what happened in the beginning 
In the same way, we are feeling the effects of this thing Jesus has done, right? It's overflowing to the many. There's this reality that in the same way, we often feel this shame for things we, we didn't do. Sometimes we suffer the consequences for choices we didn't actually make, decisions we didn't make or have any part in. We all know that experience. Somehow in the gospel, there is another way, an unjust way that God has made so that we can enjoy the results of something we didn't do as well. We can enjoy the good consequence, the reward of a thing we had no part in through the blood of a lamb. The dreadful kind of beauty. A dreadful kind of of injustice that God has suffered. That through another's blood, somehow I can be free. I can be whole. I can be free of shame and guilt and hopelessness. Somehow, mysteriously. I can enter into the kingdom because of something I didn't do. It's unjust. And God has chosen to embrace it for himself. We all know this. We live our lives, even from the earliest ages of our lives. We are obsessed with the idea that this is not right, it's not fair, it's unjust. Somebody's probably said it back there this morning. I didn't get as many goldfish as he did. Like, we live in this mindset, right? And God is saying to his people, I'm going to shift the injustice onto myself. When I see the blood of this innocent creature, I will pass over you. No plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. For a thing they didn't do, for blood that's not theirs, somehow he's going to pass over them. He's going to cover them. Now, if you read Exodus 13, you keep reading after Exodus 12 where we were today, the next thing you'll hear God say to Moses is, this meal that you just celebrated... Celebrate it every year. Come back to it over and over again. You're supposed to celebrate Passover every year. And for centuries, that's what they did. Over and over again, they would come back to this. And they knew the meal intimately. Even children would have known every little detail, right? The same way our kids know Christmas and Thanksgiving. They understand who's coming, what it's going to be like. They know the rhythms of their families, the liturgies of their families, and the way it all works. It had been going on for centuries. And there was always a person who was chosen to lead the family through it. And when they were leading the family, they're not just telling them what they're eating. They're retelling the story of Passover. Retelling, reminding them. They all know the story, but they want to hear it again and again, right? This is what's happening. And so Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem for Passover. And when they sit down to have what will eventually be, we find out, their, their last meal together before Jesus dies... They celebrate the Passover together. Jesus is the one who's chosen to lead in that moment. But here's the thing. Any Jewish person reading the Gospels finds something missing. They recognize this is different. What Jesus is doing is, is a little bit different. Jesus is tweaking what we have known for a very long time. And maybe they're a little uncomfortable with it because where's the lamb? This is the centerpiece of Passover, we know the bread is there, we know the cup is there, but where is the lamb? What is Passover without a lamb, right? Like he's, Matthew's drawing attention to this when he does it. All the other gospel writers, none of them mentions lamb. Something's wrong. And then you begin to realize Jesus is, is changing everything. Jesus is mixing everything up. Jesus says, this bread, as he passes it around, 
this is my body. And they're all thinking, wait a minute. That's new. That's not how this goes, right? There was a liturgy, a special way you were supposed to say these things. And Jesus is kind of tossing it aside for a moment to make a point. He says, this cup is, is my blood. It's, it's poured out for the sins of the many. Again, that's, that's different. That's not kosher. You can't say that. Be careful, Jesus, right? It's different. And it's Jesus' way of trying to say, the lamb is not on the table because the lamb is sitting at the table. You're sitting next to the lamb. Jesus is trying to draw attention. It's, it's my blood that's going to cover you, that's going to mark you as God's people. It's my sacrifice that's going to deliver you. Right? Remember, in Egypt, they eat the Passover meal before the Exodus. The Passover is like the, the catalyst that begins the Exodus. It's what makes Pharaoh finally give in, right? The Passover, then the Exodus. This is the way they understood it. And Jesus is making very clear in this moment. He says, first we eat this meal, and then the Exodus is coming. First we share this meal together, and then salvation is coming. Jesus is saying, just as John the Baptist had when he laid eyes on him, the first time with his disciples, he saw him walking and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is trying to draw attention to this thing. First the Passover, first this meal, and then the Exodus is coming. But this sacrifice is different. Instead of a lamb, as we might think of it, God has decided to substitute his son, his own son, his firstborn, precious in his sight, right? God required Abraham to give Isaac. We all remember this. But who could require God to give his own son? No one requires this of God, and yet he chooses to do it. And what's so haunting about it is, is if God has decided to put his own son on the altar, there is no voice that can interrupt the sacrifice. There is no one who can tell him to stop. There's no one who can bring the ugliness to an end. No, God has decided to do it. He's chosen willingly to do this. See, what we're seeing in the crucifixion, what we're seeing in Jesus, is not some kangaroo court that has wrongfully convicted him. We're not seeing a, a, a mob that has gone out of control. Yes, Jesus is truly betrayed, truly murdered by these people, and yet none of it is ever out of line with what God intended. God was embracing this. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 18, such a powerful statement, no one takes my life from me. Don't be deceived. I lay it down willingly. If God has decided to do this, no one can stop it. No one can stop the ugly scene because he's chosen it. No one can stop this dreadful moment because Jesus knows something beautiful is coming from it. And he's willing to go there. Nothing will keep him from it either. What you see in the Passover, what you see in the Last Supper, is that terrible thing that God once asked of Pharaoh. He's now asking of himself, his firstborn son. God has shifted the cost completely onto himself. It's his to bear. A moment of injustice. And I think as we, we come to the table this morning, I think it's good for us to remember 
how they approach the table. I think we, there's a familiarity that we experience every time we come to the table. We know it, right? It's a cup of juice. It's a piece of bread. We know what the guy's going to say. We know how this is all going to play out. But I think sometimes that familiarity kind of hurts us as we approach the table. And it's good to be reminded of how the disciples would have approached the table. There had been this consensus uh, during their lifetime uh, that there are a few essentials, right? You probably caught this in Exodus 12, right? There are certain items that have to be present for any Passover meal, right? The rabbis had agreed. Though there are lots of different pieces. Maybe you've had a Seder meal before, a Passover meal before. Maybe you've sat down and done that. There are all these little pieces, all these intricate details, but a lot of people couldn't do that. Some people couldn't get those things. They couldn't afford those things, and so it was kind of established. We understand that, but there are a few essentials. We're going to kind of hone it down. There are four things that have to be present, right? The first is obvious. It's, it's unleavened bread. Why is the bread unleavened? Because leaven takes time. Yeast takes time. We all learned this, right? The beginning of the pandemic, thanks to social media, everybody simultaneously decided they needed to learn how to make bread. You guys remember that whole thing? Yeah, we all had lots of time on our hands. We didn't know what to do with our time, so I'm going to make bread, right? But guess what? They had no time. There was no time. They were eating this meal in a hurry. God tells them, I want you to tuck your cloak into your belt. I want you to put sandals on your feet and have your staff in your hand. Eat this meal in a hurry because we're leaving, right? First the Passover, then the Exodus, right? But there's something incredible about coming to the table of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, I know Matthew for sure says it. He says that Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. It was a thing they'd been doing for centuries. They didn't stand. They didn't put their shoes on their feet and have their staff in their hand ready to go. They reclined. Because who reclines when they eat? Not slaves. It's the wealthy who recline, and someone serves them, brings it to them, and it's like as they came to the table, they knew they were not servants or slaves. God was serving this meal to them. They reclined in the presence of God, and the invitation at Jesus' table is to recline in freedom, recline in the presence of Jesus, rest in the presence of Jesus, because we spend so much of our lives running away from things. We're always running, right? We're running from who we were, We're running uh, from our addictions, from our past. We're running from some old wound that we don't want to confront head on, some hurt that we don't think will ever heal, whatever it might be. We're running from things. We're running after things, right? There's always something we feel is left undone. There's always more that we could be doing, right? We're distracted and busy people, and we bring that with us to the table. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot hurry through this meal. Rest. Come to the table and recline in the presence of Jesus. The other thing you find is wine, obviously. Wine, they would have sipped after every bite they took, right? They'd eat something ceremoniously, and then they would drink wine. And Jesus does something different than they would have. He says, this is my blood poured out for the sins of many. Jesus is saying, my blood is the blood that covers you. I am the Passover lamb. It is my blood blood that, that covers you, that marks you as God's own people, as God's firstborn. The table is this reminder that we we identify ourselves with so many things. We root our identity in so many things, and our culture encourages this. And Jesus is saying, 
Your identity is found first and foremost in this, that you belong to God. You are marked by the blood of the Lamb. You are His. You belong to Him. Don't allow your identity to be tied anywhere else, right? The other thing you find at the table uh, are bitter herbs. Well established for them, it was necessary. Why do you need to eat bitter herbs? Because you need to be reminded of the bitterness of slavery, the bitterness of the things you have suffered and been through, the bitterness of captivity. You eat the bitter herbs to remember what God has brought us from, what he's brought us through, right? But at the table of Jesus, there's no mention of the bitter herbs. They are conspicuously missing. Why? Seemingly because Jesus is trying to say, I'm the one who will be left with the bitter taste in my mouth. Jesus is the one who's going to swallow that bitter pill on our behalf. Jesus is the the perfect picture that God has decided to taste his people's bitterness. Their suffering, their oppression, the things they've been through, God is bringing that all on himself. We come to the table, the truth is, so often, the deepest kind of bitterness in our hearts, like just aware of the, the things we've been through, the pain we walk with, the wounds we carry, Right? We come with bitterness. Sometimes this sort of unforgiveness. Things we haven't let go of yet. And Jesus is not saying in any sort of way, by excluding these things from the table, that our lives will be free now of, of pain and suffering, of hurt. No. But he's trying to make clear he's the one. He's the one who's tasted the bitterness in this scenario. God has shifted all of that upon himself. And then the final thing, obviously, is lamb. Normally there would be lamb sitting on the table. Jesus invites us to the table, not to feast on the lamb. There is no lamb. Instead, feast with the lamb. This is the picture. Paul says it. Every time we eat this, we're pointing toward something that's coming, right? Every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus himself says as he passes the cup around in Matthew. He says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, right? Come and feast, not on the lamb, but with the lamb. This is the reality of eternity, John says. The supper of the lamb is coming. Take heart. The lamb is not on the table. He's with us at the table. Come and rest in the presence of Jesus. Come be freed from your bitterness. Come find your identity completely in this. As the band comes, uh, as they lead us into worship, I invite you, allow, allow this to kind of disrupt your normal rhythm. We come with a whole lot of rhythms. Uh, we, we come very ritualistically to the table. That's normal. We do this every Sunday. But allow the Holy Spirit to kind of disrupt all of that, to shake up all of that to remind you what's happening here, of the monumental nature of what we're doing every time we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for these moments. And I ask, Lord, that you you stir something among us in, in worship as we come to your table. God, I pray people find rest here. I pray they find freedom here. Would you lift our hearts in these moments? And would this dreadful beauty stir us to worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So feel free to come as they play.
uh, tear off a piece of bread, take a cup, and then move back towards your seats and just hold on and I'll come back up and, and lead us through everything.